Okay, so uh, we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we will be in chapter 5 today. Uh, and today's message is going to be titled, Confronting Sin in the Church. Uh, so if you all have your Bibles, your apps, uh, or whatever you would like to use, uh, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And starting in verse 1, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Um, so welcome to church, everyone. We are going to be talking about an uh, interesting topic today. Um, so when we're talking about the church, this is a place where, you know, people are messy, and the Bible is not afraid to talk about that. Uh, so we are going to be talking about quite the messy topic today. Um, but before we do that, I actually want to go back and refresh our minds about who, it, who are the Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you recall a few weeks ago, Dave talked about this. It says that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God and our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So before he does anything, Paul first introduces himself, and then he calls the church in Corinth saints. Uh, and then later on, we kind of get into all the mess and everything. We're just like, wait a minute, if you guys are so messy, yet Paul still calls you saints and still refers, you, refers to you as this. So he's saying, okay, this is your identity in Christ, your saints, but now we're going to talk about your mess a little bit. But do not forget who you are in Christ. Uh, in chapter 4, so last week, chapter 4, uh, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So not only does he remind them first in chapter 1 who you are, but later on in chapter 4 he reminds you this is how you ought to live. So keep that in mind when we're going through chapter 5. He says, okay, this is who you are. This is how you are to live. Now he's going to address some kind of crazy issues going on in chapter 5. Uh, so, picking right back up. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So, before we continue, let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we humbly come before you this morning. We ask, Father, that that you would just be with us as we go through this text, that you will prepare our minds and hearts to receive your word, um, that you will help us to, to understand what you are saying here and to help us apply it to, to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So while looking at verses 1 and 2, we see that there are two main issues that are being reported to Paul. The first issue that we see here is the issue of immorality. Paul says, there is a report that a man is sleeping with his father's mother. Okay. But then he says the second issue is that the church is being arrogant. Well, so what does he mean, and, and what, what can we glean from both of these, both these ideas? So first we're going to look at the issue of immorality. What exactly is going on here? So this immorality is a very scandalous thing that is happening. And it's not just scandalous for the church, but it's also consider, considered scandalous amongst the Gentiles, those who are not part of the church. So in the Jewish culture, they already understand, hey, look, dude, you don't, you don't do things with your stepmother, your stepfather, or, you, know, you know, anything like this. It says so in the Bible. We find that in uh, both Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22. So we know, hey, don't do those kinds of things. But we also find out uh, when we do a little research into the Roman culture is that Romans didn't even approve of this thing either. So the church is kind of like, hey, yeah, you know, this guy's doing this thing with his wife. And it's kind of like, okay. But no, it's not okay because even the laws in the Roman culture say, no, it's not okay. Because if you were found out doing these things, one, you can lose your status. Two, you could be exiled, and three, you can lose all your property. So they took this sin very seriously. Uh, so the question is, well, why is the church allowing this? If not only the public says this is bad, and the church knows this is bad, why are they allowing it? Well, that follows the second issue. The second issue is that they're being arrogant. So how are, how are they being arrogant? So there's three, main, there's three ideas as to how the, the church in Corinth is being arrogant. Uh, the first idea is that they may have been abusing grace. It may have been one of those things where they said, okay, uh, we believe that we're being gracious to this man by just, you know, letting him continue to sin. We're going to be really loving to him. Um, there are times where we actually see this in our culture where some people say, you know what, we're, we're just going to let it go because, you know, love is love and it's okay. Or that they're going to say, you know what, but the Bible says not to judge. So we're just not going to judge him or we're just going to let him, you know, do what he wants to do. Okay, that's one idea. Uh, a second idea is his social status. Uh, it, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about this particular man, but it is a possibility that he could have been a really rich person or have really high social status. He's just one of those people that everybody's like, okay, man, we all know who you are, so we're going to all follow you, and we're just going to let you do what you do. Uh, that's something we kind of see today. Uh, if we look at those who we hold in high esteem, we kind of look at, oh, you know, celebrities, they seem to get away with anything. Athletes, they seem to get away with anything. Uh, politicians sometimes seem to get away with anything. Or there's even really popular pastors. We're kind of like, hey, you know what? It's okay. We're just going to let it slide. So that's a possibility of what's going on here in this church is that they're like, hey, everybody knows who you are, so you know, we're just going to let it slide this, this time. Uh, the third possibility is that they were just afraid of confronting the sin, that they just didn't, let's, let's, let's not rock the boat. Let's keep the peace. You know, let's, it's too messy. I don't want to deal with that. Uh, but we're not told in the text specifically how the church was being arrogant. 
We just know that they were. So it could have been you know, any number of those issues. It could have been one particular reason, or it could have been all three. The only thing we know is that they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So how do we know what they were supposed to be doing? Well, we're going to look at another passage that has to do with issues within the church. So we're going to look at Matthew 18. This is going to be verses, verses 15 through 17. So this is Jesus here telling us, this is how you handle issues within the church. So starting in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to, even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax, tax collector to you. So what does this passage mean? Um, we're going to look at that. There's actually four different, four different ideas going on here in this passage. Uh, I'm going to give you a side note real quick. Uh, this is how we deal with sin in the church. Now, you, as being teens, children still, uh, we don't necessarily handle sin this way when it comes to you all. Uh, it's handled a little differently because you all are still under your parents' authority. So that looks a little different. We're not going to talk about that today. We're just going to talk about, hey, what's going on in the text here and how they should have been handling that in the text. So this is, a, this is a thing that I got from David Platt, and he breaks it down into four different areas of how we are to handle sin within the church. So the first one is private correction. So what do we mean by private correction? So the very first step, what we do is that we go to that person. We don't go to anybody else. We don't, uh, you know, take it as a, what do we like to call it in church? A prayer request. I'm going to share a prayer request with you. That's gossip. We don't go around gossiping about somebody's sin. We don't go and tweet about it. We don't snap about it. We don't do a be real about it. No, we go and confront that person in their sin, and we talk to them about it. But we do it in a gentle and loving manner. We don't just go up to the person and be like, hey, you're a sinner. And, you know, no, it's, it's gentle. We do it in a gentle manner, and we do it in a loving manner because we are concerned for the person, not just because we're like, hey, you're bad and I'm not, so I'm just going to, you know, address this. So then the second step here is small group clarification. So what does that mean? Well, if the person doesn't repent in the first instance, then we take it to the people who are closest to them, who are either in their small group, who are their closest friends, but we have to make sure that these people are also believers. We don't go and tell non-believers what's going on with those who claim to be believers. I mean, they're not going to understand why or how we address this sin. So we take it to these people, and then we address them together. And when we do that, we go and say, hey, here is this sin issue going on. If you claim to be, to be a follower of Christ, you need to repent. And again, we do it in a loving and gentle manner. We don't just go to the people and say, throw the Bible at them and be like, this is what the Bible says, you know. We are to do it in a manner to where it doesn't offend the people or offend the person because the Bible is already offensive enough. 
we don't have to be offensive to them. So we do it in a manner that is loving, and we say, this is what Scripture says about this here. We need you to repent. Because if you claim to be a follower of Christ, Scripture says you shouldn't be doing this. So then the third step, if they still don't repent, it says to take it to the church. This one here, he calls it church admonition. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we take it to the church leadership. It doesn't mean that, hey, we get up in front of the church and we just, you know, blast everybody's news out in front of the church and be like, hey, guys, you know this person over here? Most of you don't know them, but they're doing this. That's not what that means. It's not what we do. So we take it to the elders, the pastors of the church, the ones who are supposed to be shepherding the church, and we say, hey, we've approached this person with this sin issue, and then they haven't repented, and then we took it to multiple people. They still haven't repented. Now we're bringing it to you because you are our shepherds. You are our overseers. You are the ones who help us in our sanctification. And so then the elders and the pastors, they approach the person, and they call them to repentance. They say, hey, look, you're sinning. You're not living as Christ would want you to live. And so if they don't repent, well, what's next? This one says church exclusion. What does that even mean? So it means that the church no longer affirms them as being a believer. Sometimes uh, it will include not being allowed to participate. No, no it does include not participating in the Lord's Supper because only believers can participate in the Lord's Supper. Non-believers don't or can't or shouldn't. And then sometimes there's instances where they were asked to leave the church. That's not always. There's times where we still allow people to come to the church, but sometimes there's some sins where it's like, look, you can't come back here because your sin is hurting the church. And so that's what that fourth point is. But when we do these things, when we follow these steps and confront sin, we have to do it in humility and love. J.D. Greer puts it this way. He says, when, when we, excuse me, he says, we are to have a posture of reconciliation and condemnation. So our goal is to restore the sinner and reconcile them to the church. It isn't just to be like, hey, you're a sinner, so I'm going to let you know that you're a sinner. No, that's not being loving. That's not helping them to be the believer that they are supposed to be. That's not helping them in their sanctification. So this is what the uh, church in Corinth should have done. But let's see what happens. What do they do? Verse 3. So in verse 3, he says, Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in, the, in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So why does Paul already make this judgment and say, hey, put this person out of the church? Why does he not follow the rest of the steps? Paul makes this judgment because the whole church already knew of the man's sin, and they allowed it. He also made this judgment for the sake of both the man and the church. So when Paul is saying, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
He isn't saying to literally, oh, here, give the man over to Satan so Satan can, you know, literally destroy him or kill him or anything. No, what it's, uh, what it's talking about here in this text, when he says hand him over to Satan, Satan is the equivalent to the world. So if we see other places in Scripture where it says that Satan is the king of this world or the ruler of this world, that's what Paul is talking about here in this, this passage. He's not saying, oh, Satan specifically, here you go, here's a gift. No, he's saying, treat this man as an unbeliever. You put him out of the church. You do not affirm him. He is not a follower of Christ. And when it talks about the destruction of his flesh, here flesh, and we'll see other places in Corinthians where it talks about, uses the word flesh, it's talking about his sinful nature. It's not talking about his actual body. So he's saying that when we say that this man is not a believer, we put him out of here and we hope that God will remove that sinful nature from him. So Paul is saying, I want you to view this man as an unbeliever, remove him from the community because he is harming the church. He wants the church to entrust this man to God so that he may come to repentance, uh, whether that be by him realizing that he is missing out on this community of believers or that it's him being held responsible by the community, by the, by the city, by the state, by their laws, or I mean, even the possibility that he be held accountable by his actions, possibly by a bodily disease, because we know some sins can cause diseases, and that may be another possibility when Paul is saying, hey, put him out so for the destruction of his flesh, not just his sinful nature, but that, hey, you know, he needs to be held responsible for his actions because he's not only not living as a Christian should, he's also breaking the law of the land. And so Paul is saying, hey, he, he needs to be held responsible for this. So how is this man being removed from the church? How, do, how does it help the church? How is that good for the church? Uh, let's pick up in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, this idea, leaven. Leaven was similar to yeast in that it was used in, in making bread. Uh, you would put it, you would, it's kind of like, has anybody seen uh, people making sourdough bread and they got their little starter sitting there? It became real popular here in 2020 and 21. Some people kind of kept doing it. Some people failed miserably, you know. It just, oop, I saw somebody raise their hand back there. You should ask them about it. Ask them what their little starter looks like. Anyways, uh, so what you would do with, uh, with the leaven is that you would have a little bit set aside and you would take it and you would put it in the new batch that you're making. And the leaven would actually get into the entire loaf of bread and it would cause it to rise. And so while it would, what Paul is saying here is when we put that little bit of leaven, just like we put a little bit of yeast into something, it gets into everything. He's saying, this is what will happen in the church. If you allow a little bit of sin, just a little bit, we just say, hey, you know what, that sin, it's okay. We're just going to allow just a little bit of it. 
He's saying, no, it's going to permeate the entire church. It's going to spread. It's going to cause issues within the entire church. Another way to look at it or think about it like, like this, that um, this makes a little bit more sense to us today because we don't really deal with leaven and there's a lot of us that just don't break, that just don't bake bread. So it's kind of like, okay, whatever. Uh, think about cancer for a minute. All of us know somebody who's dealt with cancer or has had cancer. Um, but we know that, hey, when somebody has cancer, we have to remove that cancer or what will it do? It'll spread. And when it spreads, what does it do? Well, it destroys the body. It can even destroy it up to the point of death. So my grandfather, <clears throat> he had cancer. And, you know, go to the doctor. Doctor tells him, hey, you need to stop smoking because this is causing your cancer. And what did my grandfather do? He did not stop smoking. He continued to smoke. And he was just like, I tell you guys, when, this, when I say this guy smoked, he smoked like, four or five packs a day, like he was just sitting in his back room. I'm just like, what are you doing, man? But anyways, the idea is you go to a doctor, a doctor tells you to do something, you do it because you know it's good for you. So think about this the same way as we think of sin. Sin is just like a cancer in the church. If Paul here is telling us you need to remove that from the church or else it will harm the church, it's the same thing as Paul saying, hey, remove the cancer or it's going to harm the body. But they weren't doing that. But I also want you to know when we are told to remove sin from the church, that it's actually a form of worship. Wait, what are you talking about? What do you mean removing sins of form of worship? Look at verse 7. We're going to go 7 to, uh, seven to 8. It says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ is our Passover lamb, has been our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Jesus is a Passover lamb. So this is making a reference back to the Old Testament, back when the people of Israel were still in Egypt. They were captive, and they were being set free. So they're doing this feast of Passover. They celebrate it every year to remember that they have been set free. And so we're saying now, now Jesus, this was back then. This is now an example. All of that happened as an example for what was to come. Jesus is this Passover lamb, and we do things like the Lord's Supper to remember what Jesus has done. So we see that Jesus is our Passover lamb, that he was sacrificed for our sins, and when it tells us to observe this feast and to do it with sincerity and truth, it is honoring and acknowledging who Jesus is and what he has done, and it shows him what he is worth. So did you know when we use the word worship, it actually means to give worth or value to something? So we cannot worship if we are permitting sin to reign. If we place more value on if we do not remove the sin, it places more value on the sin, and we give more worth, more value to sin than we do to Christ. So when it says remove this, and we do remove sin, we are giving Christ the value that he is worth because we are acknowledging what he has done and who he is.
Here's this quick side note. Discipline just doesn't start with, when we looked at those steps, it just doesn't start with step one. It actually starts way before then. But what do I mean that step one actually starts before then? Well, it starts when we follow Christ. If we look at Luke 9.23, Jesus says that, Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple of Christ, to practice daily disciplines, to deny yourself your sinful desires and your inclinations. This is what we are denying. It is to, what it means to be a disciple is to love the church even when we don't want to, It is to be in community. It is to read the Bible consistently. It is to pray. It is, this is where discipline starts. When we are faithful to these disciplines, you won't need to get to step two of that list there because it's taken care of in step one. Step one is actually accountability. That's a good thing. It's good that we actually make it to step one because then we are in actual community and we are helping each other in our sanctification. We are helping each other to be Christ-like. But step two is where you kind of have an issue where multiple people come and address you in your sin. That's kind of where the issue kind of starts. But holding each other accountable is a good thing. Being disciplined before then is a good thing. So let's finish, with our, uh, let's finish with our text here. Starting picking up back up in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, somebody who's a follower of Christ, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders, those who are not part of the church? Don't you judge those who are inside? Other believers. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So when we read this text, it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? We're kind of like, eh, dang, man. What? Uh, so just don't, just don't do anything with them. Just, you know, I'm going to put you outside. I'm just not going to do anything with you. But then sometimes we look at the text and we're kind of like, wait, don't I kind of struggle with some of the same things? Some of you may not struggle with some of those things, or I hope that at least you don't struggle with some of the things that he lists right there right now. Um, but there are many of us who do struggle with quite a few of these things. And we're like, man, dude, does this mean that I get to be put out from the church or that I'm going to be addressed like this because I've struggled with these things or sometimes do struggle with these things? What Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to make a point. And he's trying to see, do you take sin seriously? And he's saying, but if the church permits sin... What will those who are looking from the outside think? Who will, what will those who are not believers think if we are permitting sin within the church? The scriptures tell us that God says that we should be holy because he is holy. 
And when the outside world looks at us and sees, hey, you're permitting all this sin and you guys are just, you guys are just acting out all kinds of crazy ways, what does it tell the world about God? Does it tell them that God is holy? Because if we are told, be holy for I am holy, well, what, is, what does it say when we're just, you know, doing all kinds of crazy things? It says, well, God isn't holy, so therefore you don't need to be holy, therefore you don't need to repent. Therefore, Jesus, you know, he wasted his time. He didn't, it was for no reason whatsoever. I want you to ask yourselves two questions here <clears throat> when we look at this text. How seriously do you take sin? Or, and, how seriously do you take the holiness of God? Did you know that when we sin, we are attacking the very nature of God, his very character? That's why when the Ten Commandments, it starts out, you should have no other gods before me. And then everything that follows, what he says we shouldn't do, it's an attack against who he is. But I'm not going to leave you all there. Because just like uh, Miss Ron Slavin says, I'm not going to leave Jesus dead. I'm not just going to leave you guys at the end to just be kind of like, oh, hey, you know what? We're all condemned. There you go. Which is what we were. We were all under condemnation. What does scripture say? It says, but God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we intentionally went out and sinned against him, even when we don't necessarily intentionally sin against him, when we act out in this manner, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's Ephesians 2, if anybody's wondering. So I want to ask, if you are here this morning and you do not believe in Christ, this is your invitation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I will invite you, if you want to know more, if you'll be like, hey, you know what? Yeah, I, I am a sinner and I've been living this way and I want to know more. Find a leader and talk to them. They are more than willing to talk to you about this. Because believe it or not, yeah, a lot of us have struggled with a lot of crazy things. But we're living a repentant life because of what Christ has done. And that's what we want to talk to you about. Say, hey, you know what? you got a lot of crazy things going on in your life. Let's talk about that. You want to know who Jesus is? Let's talk about that. You want to know what he did for you? Let's talk about that. And then for those who are believers, for those who are believers, if you are struggling with sin, and you see that list of, oh, how people approach you, and, and it's kind of like, hey, it's scary. It's not easy to deal with. But if you find that, hey, I'm struggling with sin, and, and I don't know what people are going to think about me, I don't know what to do, come talk to us. Come find one of your leaders. Talk to Dave. Talk to Megan. We're more than willing to talk with you and help you work through your sin, because this is something we need to take seriously and something we need to remove. That's all of us. We each need each other. This is accountability. And we help each other in our sanctification and to live as Christ wants us to live so that the world may see who Jesus is and repent.